Welcome everyone to the Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is the guy who knows there is no jeté without the tendu. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Solitude has made you snasty. The Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 201, Restless Energy, and 202, White Lines. Is sponsored by Mrs. Dash. Pinch this. Pete, so glad to be back talking Cloak and Dagger. Indeed, in these days where there seem to be less and less Marvel television shows on Cloak and Dagger, nonetheless, bringing the representation of its wonderful story, its great cast, its great city, and uh, glad, uh, glad again to be here talking Cloak and Dagger. The snap almost seems to have... Uh in a time-delayed sense, Matt, taken more of a toll than we initially figured when we started podcasting Cloak and Dagger last year. You know, we've lost Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Daredevil, The Punisher. We still have Jessica Jones coming, but we know this will be the end of her, you know, so embracing all the Marvel Cinematic Universe TV that we can certainly be the ones to bring you cloak and dagger unlike some johnny come latelys indeed pete apparently marvel is now doing an after show podcast so welcome to the club newbies welcome to the club yeah it's it's nice after five and a half years that they decided to fire up a competitor Pete, as you mentioned, we're doing both episodes at once here, much as it aired. So if you're listening at some point in the future and you've just watched the first episode, you know what? We're here for you. Hit pause. Go watch that second episode. And because uh, we're about to enter spoiler territory. So Pete, take us to the recap for this two episode premiere night. Tandy returns to ballet while Tyrone tracks drug dealers on the streets back to their stash house and takes their profits as well as their product. After the title card in a support group, Tandy's mother shares about making excuses for her late husband's abusiveness. Tandy thinks her act of love was heroic. New girl Michaela is only there because her friend helped her crash. Those aren't bruises, though. Her boyfriend, Jeremy, just had a bit of an accident. O'Reilly shoots target practice, but misses the mark. They've missed her these last few months, and her shoulder is back to full rotation. Perhaps the gun is off. Perhaps it's all in her head. Feeling like she's being followed, she crushes a bunch of pills from a bottle in the glove box of her car and is frightened when Ty whooshes in with the Uptown Block King's cash and dope. He's trying to make a difference after she tipped him off that they were moving near his church. But he's not out of trouble. Still a wanted cop killer. With Connor's MIA, there's not enough evidence to exonerate him. But embarrassing the Kings means they'll blame their rivals, the Money Hustle Gang. O'Reilly tells him to go back to his church and keep his head down. After the support meeting, Tandy hands Michaela the wallet with her ID she dropped earlier. She offers her a supportive ear. Tandy drops by Ty's church 
to bring him textbooks and a voice recorder for studying. She also brought a videotape of Zorro for his projector. She shares about her mom's sobriety. He shows off his skills, hesitant to go see Evita. Tandy cooks with her grateful mom, but she forgot about a makeup ballet class and has to bail on dinner. Ty sits in a tree across from his parents' house and watches his mom come home and eat alone. His father leaves a convenience store with groceries. Tandy keeps tabs on Michaela and her boyfriend. Ty spies on Evita at school. Tandy watches Michaela fight with her boyfriend and leave. Tandy breaks into an unconscious Jeremy's home and uses her light daggers to carve leave her alone on the wall while he drools. And Ty studies before teleporting into a money hustle gang drug den to disrupt operations. When they corner and start kicking the crap out of him, Tandy bails him out. Back at his church, Ty gets the business from Tandy as she confronts him about striking out on his own. She saw his map and lectures him. They argue and she leaves. O'Reilly returns home with a note from Ty that he's sorry. Captain Levy calls with details about escalating gang tensions. There's a sit-down planned at the back kitchen of Rougarou, that underground club off Richmond. You know that one, Matt. She's going to follow up with Edwin Dunlap. He's OG, as they say on the streets, and can mediate. Ty watches her through the window as she throws the phone and crushes more pills. The support group leader, Leah, is surprised to see a grateful Michaela back. Tandy's actions against Jeremy unintentionally pushed her back to him. Ty balls, Tandy ballets before they meet, and Ty apologizes, thanks her, and tells her he needs her help. Ty and Tandy bond over laundry back at the church. He shares he saw Evita. She gets him ready for the club. They're going in together so he doesn't get blindsided again. Waffles or pancakes? Tandy flashes Ty a signal for him to teleport and stash the recorder in the sit-down spot. With some time to kill, he hangs out and Tandy drinks and dances for the both of them. The gang leader summit finally goes down and south quickly. They spring into action to find the carnage. So that's the end of our first episode. If you haven't seen the second episode here, I'm going to give you three seconds to bail out. On episode two, white lines are sprinkled by a dying gang member before intermingling with his blood as Tandy and Ty arrive too late. After the title card, they wonder who done it and how. Ty listens to the recorder and hears the massacre. He also recognizes the Voodoo symbol and the, uh, the dead gang member made. O'Reilly arrives, having been called by them. They tell her their plan and how it went awry. O'Reilly takes the recorder and has them leave so she can clean up the mess. 
Ty blames himself, but Tandy says everyone plays their part. Vita's auntie sprinkles dough at her store, and she detects Ty, who has questions about the pattern he saw, which she identifies as a veve, a transactional prayer. It summons a loa. That veve belongs to Maman Brigitte, one of the death loa. The man who drew it either wanted to be guided from this world to the next or wants justice. She counsels him to pray. The answers aren't in others but himself. Auntie makes another veve, Papa Legba, keeper of the crossroads, who she asks to protect Ty. Just then, Evita smells Auntie making biscuits and gets more than she bargained for. It's been eight months since she's seen Ty and she's upset. He shows her his power to teleport, but she's not impressed. At the church, Ty draws a vive and teleports into an ambulance where Michaela has been drugged and kidnapped. As he tries to free her, the man in the front passenger seat notices him and narrowly misses with a shotgun. Tandy listens to Michaela share at the support group. Leah cautions about moving back home with Jeremy. Tandy tells her it's her choice and that she should leave Jeremy. Instead, Michaela leaves the meeting. As Tandy practices ballet, she recalls her mother confronting her about Michaela uh, and giving her a hard time, and Jeremy lying about the three thugs who tore up his place. She makes the lights flicker and flash out. Before a, a support group meeting, Tandy questions Leah about Michaela's whereabouts before Andre Deschain, who runs the outreach programs there, breaks it up. Michaela's friend Grace hasn't seen her either. They walk through the neighborhood to check a shelter house. Andre, you see, is a former jazz musician whose migraines forced him to give it up. He turned his pain into helping others overcome theirs. Just then, Tandy thinks she sees her father on the street and blows the power out on the block and runs away. O'Reilly boozes in a bar where she ignores a couple calls on her phone before being summoned to the scene of a fateful gang summit, which she makes an anonymous call about. She returns to the bar and barfs in the street where she sees a doppelganger in the reflection of a puddle. She returns to the crime scene where the other cops give her a hard time for ducking calls. She theorizes someone got inside the room, beat the security sweep, and surprised them in the middle of the meeting. The cops don't think one person could have done all that carnage. A forensic detective got prints on the man who drew the veve. Brett Latour owns a liquor store. O'Reilly goes to his home and questions his wife, ruining a $100,000 painting by a man whose income should have only been about 60K. The house is built on dirty money. They tell her about his business in the salvage yard near the industrial canal, 
where he's being paid to store vehicles, off-the-book private ambulances. O'Reilly heads there and runs into Tandy. Tandy watches auntie and friends sing around a monument to the missing on a telephone pole. Andre explains why the more than dozen poor brown girls aren't recovered. Leah calls Andre to tell him Michaela was found, overdosed, but alive at the hospital where she rushes. Leah lectures her not to give Michaela a hard time when she wakes. Tandy touches Michaela's hand and witnesses a vision of the neon liquor store sign and what happened to her in the ambulance before making the power go out again. A male nurse explains the jerky private ambulance driver who dropped her off didn't sign his paperwork. Tandy uses social media to locate the liquor store with the sign next to the salvage lot. She and O'Reilly see a suspect and give chase. Tandy making the lights flicker. When O'Reilly blocks the ambulance from leaving, he turns toward Tandy who summons a ball of white light between her hands by thinking of all the things she's experienced that day and hurls it. Hadouken. The driver denies shooting Michaela up with heroin. It was just a job. He doesn't know where the other girls are. O'Reilly sends Tandy to watch out for his cronies and kills the driver. At the church, Ty keeps trying to get his lines right. Something Evita says takes most people months. The trick is in the breath. She agrees to help him. They teleport to the hospital where Michaela is recovering. When the cops come in, Evita kisses him so Ty doesn't get discovered. She tells him to leave because it's not safe, and she'll see if she can learn anything. He goes to O'Reilly's apartment where he finds her gagged and bound. She did it to herself. Tandy's in trouble too. He teleports O'Reilly and himself to Tandy, but if O'Reilly's with Ty, then who's? Mayhem is here. Cat's out of the bag now. Pete, let's talk some dark figures from this episode. Who tops the villainous list? Is it any other than the Uptown Block Kings? I mean, the thing that drives them home, other than the generic bad doing of drugs and profiting off that, employing a 14-year-old that Ty mentions later on to uh, O'Reilly, and obviously an enterprise that needs to be shut down. I think, too, part of the mission statement of this show, I dare say, is an attempt to be authentic, not just to New Orleans, but kind of authentic in a way that, yes, the Marvel Netflix shows were, but maybe with a little bit more of that that younger person perspective. And not to say the drugs are exclusively in the purview of, of you know, under 20 or under 25, but... Tyrone seeing this intersection of the drug world and the world he used to inhabit and, and where he's at now, I think it adds to the show's attempt to be really timely. And by setting up this gang rivalry and the tensions, and obviously this serves to 
create the trajectory for the end of the first episode that's followed up in the second of this gang summit gone south um, to, you know, start to showcase this mystery about what's going on with these missing girls. As we move chronologically, we get to perhaps in a certain sense, maybe in an emotive sense, the biggest villain in the two episodes, and I say that without any any attempt at humor, uh, we get to Jeremy, who, you know, again, kind of objectively, we see drug dealers, we see killers, we see mayhem, etc. But Jeremy and his abusive nature is very squarely at the center of, of these two episodes in terms of the show trying to give a message to young women watching the show. You mentioned the, you know, tougher content that we see in um, the, this a Freeform show, the only Marvel show on, on Freeform, um, with the Netflix shows all but gone now, kind of becoming a place to explore some of these rougher issues. When you think that Joe Pekaski here as showrunner gives us an opening premiere of two episodes in which domestic violence and human trafficking are, you know, at the forefront of the story. This is both current and timely. I think too, you also have, you have, you know, Jeremy with the boo hoo hoo. It was one, no two, no three thugs. They came, they trashed my place. And that kind of self-victimization that he does, you know, it only adds to how slimy, how smarmy he is. And I, I applaud the fact that the episode, the episode gives us a solution, and it's a sensible one. He hits you, you leave. But that's not always followed through, or that's not always possible, or that's not always easy. And the episode gives us the best answer. He hits you, he leave, you leave. But also the fact that, you know, Michaela is struggling with it and Tandy is struggling with the fact that she can't help out Michaela more. The Money Hustle Gang, Matt, I particularly love the homage to the 1991 uh, film New Jack City. So in New Jack City, for those that are just, uh, you know, finding... Uh, cloak and dagger here new jack city um we have ice t as an undercover cop and uh the organization he's trying to put down in new york are the cash money brothers so here with the money hustle gang they have a uh a stash house where they have people putting together the drugs what with the the masks on and they're inspected so they're not sneaking anything out uh, the Cash Money Brothers in New Jack City, they have taken over a, um, an entire uh, apartment complex and they have an area called the Enterprise. Do you, do you remember the Enterprise, Matt? Uh, not, not in that context, no. That's where Chris Rock explains they go to use because you're beaming up to the Enterprise. And uh, later gets caught and it is both raw and real in terms of its presentation. So I love that there's a little bit of an homage to that OG movie at this point with this group. They're also shown to be much more violent than the Uptown Block Kings or like we like to call them around Fantastic Geek, the UBK. 
Also on this villainous list, we have the ambulance driver, and I suppose by implication, the, the network of private ambulances that are out there as, as cover for bad things. Uh, Pete, it's not often that you see uh, first responders, uh, particularly of the EMT variety, you know, toting shotguns and shooting at youths. I don't think ambulances regularly carry shotguns. I know that police cruisers are known to do that. That seemed a little incongruous, apart from the fact that he was in the passenger seat. So there was a driver, too? Like, I I guess that's a story point to follow up later and, you know, follow the money. We have the the dude who died, right? Latour, who owned the... uh, the liquor store. So obviously there's some deeper connection. And then when you consider that the ambulance driver who tried to get away here is killed by who we eventually learn is mayhem, just desserts, right? I have to say, Pete, you know, we've, we've joked a bit, especially on social media, the, the, the tagline mayhem is coming. It seems to have been repeated and repeated and repeated. Um, and indeed, we got a little taste of that at the end of the first season. Um, and I'll also be the first to admit, I don't have a you know deep understanding of the comics background for Mayhem, but I just thought it was going to be some sort of Jekyll and Hyde type scenario. I in no way expected that Mayhem was a different physical force than Detective O'Reilly, linked however they may be. Uh, and And watching the second episode, it was like, all right, we're doing these kind of branching time loops and we're going to go back to the the visual of the vive and cocaine getting blown away to kind of reset the story and say now we're going to do a different perspective now we're going to do a different perspective and that lulled me into a false sense of security where i think by intention the show wanted us to lose track a little bit of o'reilly's chronology uh of course relative to when it is mayhem but we don't know it yet and Shocking reveal when Mayhem is in one body and O'Reilly the other. Yeah, that was particularly effective. And I, for one, I think I can speak for you as well. I'm glad they're not going the Jekyll and Hyde route. Wait, what? I did this to myself. I'm a danger to me. No, there's another one. I think, and we'll we'll talk with some light theories next, there's going to be a a rather quick explanation for this. But uh, Matt, I don't think you can go wrong with double the Emma Lahana. You absolutely cannot. And it, it sets things off as a really interesting jumping off point for these remaining eight episodes. Can't believe Pete, we're 20% through the season already just from one, one night's worth of viewing with that Pete, let's talk some light theories. First of all, Pete, we hardly had Gloria Rubin, a.k.a. Tyrone's mom in the episode. We hardly had uh, his dad in it. Will we see the happy family reunited at the end, or is he going to forever walk the streets a la Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk series? Right? The implication is they've split, isn't it? I think that there's the vague implication of that. Could it be countermanded in the next episode without any explanation sure but i think that that's that's being what's vaguely been put out there it's not uncommon when a couple loses a child and we know they've already lost tyrone's brother um to split uh to divorce people process grief differently and it creates a rift 
in the relationship. To have it happen twice, you know, thinking that Ty is either dead or run away has to be particularly tragic on a couple. So I, I guess that's where they're going. And, you know, you and I talk a lot of TV and often talk, well, what's a way to, you know, help us understand? Well, my parents aren't together anymore. You know, give us a line of dialogue. I can understand that they, they want some vagary to play around with so long as they answer us down the line. Absolutely. And Pete, you used a word there in your in your analysis that I suppose now is as good a time as any. Uh, Tyrone being a runaway, do we get at some point end of the season special uh, post credit sequence after episode 10? Do we get any sort of tease that Cloak and Dagger will cross over with runaways, particularly now that the uh, you know, now that the, the Fox deal has closed and Hulu is majority owned by Disney and Freeform, a Disney product, etc. If only, Matt, people on social media that are involved with the shows had tweeted about it. They had. That was all, you know, that was two actors meeting up. Now, could they have been meeting up to quick shoot a scene that if something goes wrong with the deal or whatever, that, that could be axed? Maybe, or maybe it was just a crossing of paths. I, I don't know, but I think there's there's that hope there. There still is, Pete, the hope that hashtag it's all connected, even though Marvel TV, everything that we've seen in the last year has ignored Thanos and the snap, with the slight exception of the very end of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. last season. They showed the hint of a fight in New York. Uh, other than that, I mean, you could very fairly say this season of Cloak and Dagger is happening, what did we say, eight months after uh, after the first season? So if the first season took place last year, then we still are, um, well, I guess, no, that was the summer. Bottom line is this, Pete, the timeline is very messed up, but we could still nonetheless keep things connected with Cloak and Dagger and Runaways. I think we're still pre-snap and... I'll answer your theory with this. If you remember back to when Freeform ran season one of Cloak and Dagger last summer, later in the run, they ran, maybe it was with the finale, they ran episode one of Runaways. Kind of like, hey, you can check it out over the air and then go to Hulu and watch the entire season now that it's been up there for half a year. Um, I suspect at some point during this season, they will run the first episode of the second season or maybe the first two over uh, Freeform. And uh, that'll be around the time that maybe some people will show up with some gloves and things and other things on your cloak and dagger. You think of what success the CW has had with its uh, DC shows crossing over and it now being a yearly thing and well, more opportunity now than ever for Marvel TV to do the same, particularly with Marvel TV production drastically on the wane. But Pete, let's keep things squarely on cloak and dagger. What's on your theory radar? So Jeremy hacked up his walls with knives and a chainsaw after um, uh, Tandy came in and wrote, leave her alone, right? Uh, Michaela didn't see leave her alone and think 
that oh thugs wrote that i guess i think it's a little vague it's a little off screen it's a not even a little it's literally off screen it's you know tell not show which is the opposite of how it's supposed to be generally um but yeah i guess that's the only conclusion is that he did further damage whether it's with the chainsaw or whatever in order to hide his fear behind uh some sort of i don't know toxic masculinity and to make himself the victim in all of this and the victim of a terrible haircut let's not leave that out um how did the guy in the ambulance miss Michaela with a shotgun? We understand how he missed Ty. Ty can disappear. When he kneeled down later, I thought it was a delayed reaction like, oh, I teleported just too late and have been hit. Thank God he wasn't. But apparently being bound to a gurney in an ambulance makes shotgun blasts miss you? Uh, it is, well, first of all, Pete, let me say, I'm not entirely sure of the, uh, conical blast radius of a shotgun and at what point that cone opens up. I think ultimately the answer is because story said so, uh, although I do share your concern. I'm also thinking, you know, how much buckshot is now splattered over the back of the, of the ambulance. Right. And somebody got her out of the ambulance like what happened here this is irregular even though you're a private ambulance like that would have been noted totally agree and ultimately this is circling around to a finger wag for the episode it's the thing that we don't see we shouldn't question even though when you pull the trigger and even if tyrone bamps away we can logically assume that you know the shotgun shot and you know etc etc so finger wag to the presentation we're starting to see some new powers out of tandy she can spike electricity and then make it go out at and now she's apparently the latest addition to the roster on street fighter <laughs> well pete uh look i was saying before the desire for it to be all connected maybe Instead of seeing Cloak and Dagger crossover uh, runaways, maybe we're setting up secretly the new freeform series Street Fighter, and uh, it, it's going to be the Street Fighter connected universe. I don't know the the New Orleans TV universe. It's all possible, dude. I think we could get Jean Claude Van Damme very easily. <laughs> uh, I completely agree. Completely, completely agree. Last one from me, not so much a theory, but more so a question. Are we going to get Mina Hess back? I sure hope so, and I was surprised that we did not see her. This is a show uh, whose first season, in terms of who they were putting out there for promotional stuff, like at San Diego Comic-Con, it basically was the the two main actors you know representing tyrone and tandy there was uh, emma lahana as uh, detective o'reilly and then you had ali mackey and again maybe that was just to promote season one you say hey you recurred in six episodes who wants to go to san diego um but i would expect her to return because i think particularly with tyrone on the run and tandy at a at a 
peaceful point with her own mother, where is conflict going to be driven in the story outside of the main conflict? You need to have these little character-defining things, and it can't just be Tandy and Tyrone and Tyrone and Tandy. So, come on, let's bring back Mina Hess, man. Let's check out some mystical connections, Matt. What do we got? We have, first and foremost, an email from our pal, 084. Are you ready, Pete? Yes. Cloak and Dagger. What a great premiere. I'm going to jump right into things. The first episode started off the same way that last year's premiere started. Tandy doing ballet and Tyrone going around a neighborhood in a hoodie. Nicely done, show. Frustration was a clear theme in the episode. I love the montage of both of them with their outlets, basketball and ballet, and trying to blow off the steam building up. And you can feel the frustration and struggle in both of them. Their crime fighting actually reminded me of Spider-Man, Homecoming. Kids going off and trying to use their powers for good, and learning that even with good intentions, all actions have consequences. Only instead of Iron Man flying in to save everyone, they have mayhem coming in to just ruin it all. That'll be fun. The second episode was the most beautiful visual of cocaine and blood I've ever seen. Okay, it's a short list. Kind of surprised they're going with a Rashomon episode style already. Some of the transitions between characters did feel a little awkward, but it worked out in the end. My first thought when meeting Andre, nope, stranger danger. He's too helpful. Don't trust him, not one bit. There's another big antagonist this season, isn't there? Mr. Jip from the comics? Calling it. Especially since it's really weird that Michaela somehow runs out of that group and somehow winds up in a human trafficking ambulance connected with the gangs Tyrone has been going after. There's a missing thread here, and I think this new guy is it. Tandy's powers going haywire was a cool touch, and it's exciting that their abilities continue to develop. What was up with Michaela's hopes not being hopeful? Maybe the heroin in her system messed her up. The outburst at the therapy group was for sure the episode's Tandy No moment. I can understand it, though. It's a great representation of an outside view of abusive relationships, and her sitting and listening to all this for months and not being able to process people not just running away, because that's what she's done her whole life. It builds up and we see her coming to a breaking point with her. But then we see her go super cyan and take out a truck, and man, that was so cool! I'm really grateful that Vita showing up didn't fully distract Ty from worrying about Michaela being kidnapped. A lesser show would have had him completely forget it. It's also cool that she helped him calm himself and get him to add to his power set. Bonus points for her pulling a Black Widow and kissing him strategically. And she gave us a time setting, eight months after, whenever season one took place. And either before Infinity War or after, depending on what happens in Endgame. I'll have that figured out in a few weeks. It is likely that we're in August or January since Tandy stole him a syllabus for the classes he's missing. Hmm. Also, yeah, great observation. Also, great touch that he's still trying to be educated even when in solitude. Also, eight months without washing his clothes and he's running around and working out in them. Cool, 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 cool. I hope he's at least snuck somewhere to brush his teeth at some point before kissing a Vita like that. <laughs> Mayhem. I was a little annoyed that they learned, leaned so heavily on her in marketing because the second something went wrong in the club, obviously that was going to be her. I did like the multiple twists with her afterwards. It first surprised me that she was a cop still and living kind of normally. 
What happened when she crawled out of that swamp? How did she get back to being herself? Then we saw Mayhem's reflection in, in the puddle and the personality shift. And I was like, oh, okay, they're going to do Typhoid Mary better than Iron Fist did. Then the final twist that there are two completely separate people and that Bridget wasn't the only one who crawled out of that swamp. I have to hand it to them. I didn't see it coming. I'm excited to see the actress get to show her range this season. Fun tidbit. I watched with closed captions. When Mayhem walked into that kitchen and started talking to the other cops, no joke, the captions identified them as, Pete, do you know the answer? I was watching with the captions, but I don't remember seeing that. I noticed what Oi4 is about to mention here. The captions identified them as Hard Ass 1 and Hard Ass 2. No way. That's yes. the best caption ever. <laughs> uh, welcome to acting, buddy. You'll be playing Hard Ass 1 today. Oh, I was so hoping to get number two. <laughs> uh, last little bit here from Oi4. Overall, I'd give this episode an 8.5 out of 10. It was amazing and it gave me a lot of what I wanted. I want to give it room to go up later, and the Rashomon style in episode two was slightly awkward. Oh, and Marvel does a Cloak and Dagger after show podcast that everyone should give a listen. For the first episode, they had Aubrey and Olivia on with them. It was so clear that they understand their characters so well and aren't just cashing paychecks. And some really funny background on the club scene as well, in, uh, as, well as the question, waffles or pancakes. Until next time, true believers, Excelsior. Well, thank you, 084, for that rather thoughtful email. I did not um, see the detail about the captions, and I'm disappointed that I missed that because I clearly would have made that a point in my recap. But, uh, yeah, on the Marvel After Show, I, and I think 084 shows his true allegiance here. He knows where the real Marvel After Show is. Indeed, Pete. Let's uh, get one more email here. This one from William Cornegay, who says, Pete and Matt, it's the second season of Cloak and Dagger, and I've come to accept that I don't like Tandy very much. I understand how being raised by a drug-addicted mother might make one rough around the edges, but the writers need to add a character or arc that softens her up. The show moves slow enough where they could add a kid she could teach ballet, or a cat, something. As much as I'm ambivalent about Tandy, I'm glad she is the foul-mouthed one with the bad attitude and not Tyrone. In the past, the African-American male would be the sourpuss and the blonde, quote, who looks like an angel, close quote, would be the positive one. Her characterization from the Ultimate Comics line is perfect, but that ship on using Tandy has sailed. Speaking of foul-mouthed, what's with the blasphemy? In an era where Hollywood is so intent on tolerance and uh, inclusivity, why does Freeform feel the need to take the Lord's name in vain? They would never intentionally insult the Muslim community by blaspheming Allah. I understand that in real life people curse and use the Lord's name in vain. People also use the N-word and derogatory slurs for women, Hispanics, and other marginalized groups. You will never hear those words on Cloak and Dagger. Why the exception for Christians? Your thoughts, Pete? Um... Yeah, I mean, with the issue there noted about, you know, one religion over another, I, I can definitely see the point. Um, I just think it's a way to get into the other issue that the email is speaking about, which is smartly done to not make Thai um, bear negative attributes as an African-American. 
I think that there are things in in these first two episodes that we could take exception with, and indeed we did in our analysis, uh, some of the particular story points. And I agree with William that the instinct of this show tends to have a slower pace than not, which sometimes I'm okay with, and sometimes it's like, all right, let's get a move on here. Um, But I think that this is a show built on an exceptionally fine foundation and William's really hammering home there on the thought that has gone in to to give at least some sort of uh, opposite representation to what is the tradition on TV as he's saying in terms of African-American males in terms of the the pretty blonde white female etc and hopefully they build on they continue to build on that I agree with him it's such, as we said before with 084's email, it's such a small cast, or I guess it was the the point there with me and Hess, your point, but it's such a small cast, main cast and recurring cast that I would welcome adding some extra characters here and there just to continue to, to push forth their character journeys. But Pete, two great emails as we kick off our, uh, our coverage of Cloak and Dagger season two. And absolutely, you could be like 084, you could be like William, and you can add your voice to next week's podcast. You can additionally do that by helping us out, going over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a written review, which we'll also read on the episode. Absolutely. That's a great way for uh, just a couple of minutes of your time, if that, to help get the word out about the podcast. Also, Pete supporting us with the bleeps and the bloops this way we don't need to be bamfing into uh into gang territory taking taking cash bags from the uptown block kings we don't put ourselves in that kind of harm because people go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and help us with our bandwidth and storage costs for as little as a cup of coffee one cup of coffee a month pete for as little as a dollar a month people can lend their help in that regard Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. We had a exclusive window on our Shazam review, having seen that a little bit early, that just a dollar got you access to get a a look behind the curtain there. We're going to be having some other exclusives very soon as we move a little closer to the end game. Indeed, Pete, but keeping things squarely here on Cloak and Dagger, as you mentioned, got our weekly podcast going. We'd love to continue to hear from people. How can people be in touch with you to talk about Tandy and Tyrone? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,400 on the nose followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, like 084 and William did, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. Well, Pete, it has been so great that we got to get together and talk about Cloak and Dagger. Looking forward to continuing to do that these upcoming weekends eight to go like i said before we're already 20 percent through the season it's going to race by but with that i will say adios to all our listeners and give you pete the final word no i know the way out